Hey, Katie, what do you think about when you think about summer? Oh, you know, like barbecues and hot dogs and going to the pool or the beach and playing frisbee in the park. I think about polio. Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Mae Prince and I'm here with Katie McGissett, creator of Beatrice the Biologist. Hello, everyone. How We've are you got doing? this like super great show for you today. I hope so. <laughs> They're all great. I don't know what you're talking about. The pressure's about. on. We're going to be talking about Jonas Salk. Yeah. Yeah. I looked, I read all the things. Good. Yeah. Because I didn't. <laughs> but before we get into him, do you have uh, something sciencey? I do. I learned about the assassin bug. Have you ever heard of these? What? Okay, no. good. I was like, I hope this isn't one of those things where I'm the last one to know I'm or something. I'm just imagining a tiny ninja bug with like razor, like little razor blade knives. Close. Ooh. So they're really interesting. There's, you know, lots of different species. There's, they're, they're in Australia, they're in Africa, they're around, but they're these really big insects that eat un- other insects. So okay. mostly ants and things like that. And they're so, oh man, they're really intense. So they go and they eat the ants. They, they suck all, everything out of them. And then there's the exoskeleton leftovers. They don't just put the whole thing in the mouth. They like suck everything out. And then they take the skeleton, like just, uh-huh. you know, this horrible, like this dead body, and they attach it to themselves. What? So as they go around feasting on ants, they're covering their bodies with, the, you know, the leftovers. And then that that camouflages them because ants can tell what's going on by smells and chemicals. That's okay. how they follow each other. That's how they do everything. Everything is, you know, oh, you smell like an ant, so you must be cool. So these huge, I mean, they're so much bigger than, than ants. They're, they're like 50 times bigger. They're just enormous. Uh-huh. And so they can just like walk right into, you know, a nest or just right around the ants and the ants don't react because they can smell all those, all the, you know, leftover, you know, pheromones and chemicals from the dead bodies. Ugh. So he just, just cruises on in so, and just kind of sits there and waits for another ant to get near its face and then just, you know, grabs it <laughs> and just sucks it dry and then attaches it to its back. So it's That's covered. how I eat. I just wait for food to get near my face and then I like stuff it in there. Don't we all? <laughs> but, but yeah, he, so these things are just covered in dead bodies. Uh, so the ants Ew. just don't notice that anything's wrong, even though this nope. thing 50 size, it, it looks like a giant ball of ants well, walking by looking at them. it. They're not, they're, they're just not like, sniffing it. yeah, I mean, it'd be pretty cool if they looked at it and were like, whoa, man. <laughs> How did this bug figure this out? I don't know. This is pretty the kind awesome. of psychotic behavior <laughs> that has evolved into a, a huge predator. Yeah, like, it's, it's really grisly. <laughs> Like, I guess, you know what, though, when you think about it, it's no different than, say, trappers or hunters who, mm-hmm. you know, skin animals and then wear yeah. the skin. Like, no, that's totally. pretty gruesome, too. Yeah. But, chem- yeah, chemically camouflaging yourself. Like, we just think about uh, camouflage being visual. So, yeah. So, of course, we're like, these stupid ants. Like, it's covered with dead ants. What are you doing? <laughs> Run for your life. Because, of course, if we saw a guy wearing a bunch of dead bodies all over him, we'd be really pretty creeped out. <laughs> I just imagine, like, the modern-day equivalent of, like, just getting a burrito and just sucking all the insides out of it and then just plastering the tortilla, like, onto well, your well, back. Well, I was thinking of the tinfoil. <laughs> Here are the tinfoils <laughs> covering the all much of better. the burritos I've eaten. Because then also... So protects you from the government's secret me. signals. <laughs> Watch out, burritos. Um, oh my god! But yeah, so really intense, and they and it looks really really funky. I mean, because it's you know it's all bumpy because they're weird yeah. size exoskeletons. And they're just kind of glued all on top of each other, and these weird. I mean, it is. It's like we'll have to we'll have to tweet a picture. Yeah, 
because I have to see this. Yeah, it's intense. It just reminds me of like Indiana Jones and just having like tons of skeletons everywhere. Like, be afraid. We're going to put skeletons. Everywhere. Like, who are these people? Where'd you get these skeletons? Jeez Louise. <laughs> they collect what did they them do to you? over the years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's like people who run out of, you know, room in a graveyard. And they're like, well, we'll just put their skulls in a chapel. I'm yeah. like, how do we leap from burying people in the ground to cleaning off their bones and yeah. painting them and putting them... All right. It's well, all good. Yeah. <laughs> We're equally screwed up in the animal <laughs> kingdom, all of us. But enough about totally insane bugs. <laughs> Sociopathic bugs. <laughs> Tell me about Jonas. So Jonas, Jonas Salk. Um, he was very important. <laughs> really? Really. And that's basically all I knew about him um, going into this. I knew that, you know, he, he invented the polio vaccine. And that was it. But I didn't know any of the context. And so reading about polio in the United States and around the world was actually pretty terrifying because yeah. it was a big deal. And it wasn't really that long ago. It was not I mean, that I, long ago. I know people that are still have, you know, slight paralysis from it. Really? Yeah. But yeah, so I, I learned all sorts of stuff about Jonas Salk. He was born October 28th, 1914 in East Harlem, New York City. So he's a New York boy. And just to put that in context, you know, that was the same year that Archduke Ferdinand got assassinated, kicked off World War One. Right. So good times. His parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia, and they had come over to the United States because they were looking for better opportunities, trying to escape, you know, whatever was going on there. That's why everyone comes to the United States. I know, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and they both worked in kind of women's clothing, manufacturing. His father, I think, was a lace maker. Oh, cool. So... Neither one of them a science background, right? Uh, but he was pretty smart. <laughs> he did well in school. And um, at one point, his mom wanted him to go into rabbinical school. But he oh, was like... Oh, to, to, to be a rabbi? To be a rabbi. Sorry, it took me a second. I was like, was, so what was that? <laughs> um, but he wanted to do something that would help people because some of his uh, formative memories were the polio epidemic of 1916, mm. which uh, infected... 27,000 people in the U.S. that one summer, and 9,300 of those were in New York. Oof. So it was huge. And yeah. like reading about this epidemic was kind of crazy because they described, you know, the ambulances coming to pick up the children, and then eventually, you know, in further epidemics, the ambulances being completely lined around the block, just waiting. And people oh, were God. so terrified, like mothers wouldn't go to the park because... They were afraid of contracting the disease. And well, they also, didn't know. They didn't fully understand what caused it no, at all they at had, this point. They had no idea. It took a while, yeah. Yeah. Was it? Was this when people thought that um, swimming pools or even ice cream caused it? They because thought it was, it, it everything always, caused right, it. Because it peaked in the summer, so people were always looking for a summer-specific reason exactly. for it to yeah, be, exactly. be being spread. Um, and so they, they, they thought, you know, cats caused it. They thought anxiety oh, caused it. It was just like, yeah, they just rounded up. Just don't do anything. They rounded up a bunch of cats at, like, several, at several points. And because they were like, it's causing the virus. They were just panicking. It was widespread panic. Terrible. And it would kind of come in these waves. So like 1916 was the at that time the largest epidemic to date in the U.S. And it would like kick up around the summer. Um, so that, that was known as like polio season, which is a terrible name for summer. Like summer should be fun. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, because everything else that you kind of are used to, like flu seasons in the fall and the, and the winter. So, you, but yeah. yeah, having something in the summer where it's like, don't go outside, don't play exactly. with your friends, and, and something to keep New Yorkers indoors during the summer, which yeah. is so hot, miserable. That must be a big. Yeah, there's deal. no AC. You know, no. you're just sitting inside going. Ugh. No, I remember reading about one of their uh, their heat waves. I think it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it was people were dying of heat stroke everywhere and in some buildings it was 130 degrees inside the building when they, well, they were also dying people. from falling off of fire escapes yes. they're sleeping on them because yes. they it was so miserable being inside yeah. so yeah new york in general at that time <laughs> sounds worse than it is now which sometimes <laughs> having lived there i can say i was that. gonna say mention that you live there quick before <laughs> you upset somebody um but yeah so he, he ended up going to a high school at the age of 12 oh my. For, for gifted male students because, you know, he skipped a bunch of grades. And then uh, he decided he went into City College in New York at the age of 15. He had a plan to study law. That was kind of, I think, the compromise of, I don't want to be a rabbi, but I'll still study some kind of law. And then he totally changed his mind, and he decided to go into medical research. That's what he wanted to do. And his mom was like, oh, you want to be a doctor? He's like, no, medical <laughs> research, not a doctor. I don't want to make money, mom. <laughs> exactly. Cool your jets. <laughs> exactly. And like money was a bit of an issue. Like sure. I think their finances were pretty uneven. So they always had to kind of stretch things out and, and try to make it. So there was that. Um, Again, we're always comparing to Charles Darwin, who was, I, yeah. I think he might be the richest person we'll ever talk about it's just like money is no problem exactly and Do like whatever. Uh, charles babbage who just right. spent his oh, entire yeah. life trying all the charles you guys find a charles and be Seriously. friends with them <laughs> uh but yeah so he he ended up going to medical school and uh he helped one of his professors study uh the strep bacterium um because you know they were still trying to figure out kind of how to culture it in the lab so that they could develop vaccines and at that time, vaccines only involved uh, live viruses. So what they would try to do is kind of, um, you know, culture a vaccine and put it through a bunch of animals and just keep harvesting the weakest version of that virus until they got like the really, really weak one. And then they would put that in a vaccine, inject it into people, and then their bodies would react, you know, produce antibodies or whatever without actually giving them the disease. So right. that was the whole concept. But at that time... The real risk was when you include a live virus batch and you give it, in, you know, put it in a person, they might actually get the disease and die or be paralyzed or whatever. So that was a huge risk, especially when it came to something like polio, which, you know, the effects were devastating. People were being paralyzed overnight, basically. Oh my God. Like they would go to bed feeling kind of bad, but not, oh, I don't know. And then in the next morning, like, they couldn't feel their legs or so it was it was just crazy so and like, that was that was the fear yeah exactly like you'd never know if a cold you have is a cold or polio so while he was in medical school he met donna Lindsay, and she was studying psychology and social work and he really liked her her family was also jewish but not observant at all like they had a christmas tree so jonas's mother was not happy <laughs> she's like she's not jewish enough um and her Donna's father was also not thrilled about the match because he was he was much more uh, concerned with appearances, and so before he would agree to allow them to marry, he had uh, two conditions. The first one was that Jonas they wait until they get married until after Jonas graduated so that they could include Doctor 
Jonas Salk on the wedding invitations. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. <laughs> so stipulation number one. Stipulation number two is even weirder. So when Jonas was born, he was Jonas Salk. That's it. Like, his parents did not give him a middle name because they thought it was pretentious. And um, <laughs> it just wasn't their style. And But his, fa- his future father-in-law thought that was too, like, low-brow. Low yeah. <laughs> and so he required him to get a middle name. <laughs> what? The and, what? And like, so he, he went through all the letters in the alphabet and he's like, I think consonants are too common. So we need to pick a vowel. I pick E. You can pick what name it is. And so Jonas and Donna got together and they're like, what should it be? I don't know. And they settled on Edward. So now he's Jonas Edward Sulk. I don't know what my face is doing right now, but... <laughs> I mean, I feel like people going through wedding planning right now will relate to just the mountain of crazy requests and, you know, things that parents ask of them. This is one of the craziest I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I agree on that. And, and I, kind of, I, I like that, that Jonas was like, oh, yeah, this is weird, but... It's not that bad. I'll do it. <laughs> he sounds like a really positive guy. He's like, well, it's a good thing I really like your daughter. Well, I think he was very non-confrontational, and he just figured, eh, it's no skin off my teeth to have a middle initial. So yeah. the wedding invitations read, Dr. Jonas E. Salk. Ta-da. They got married the day after he graduated. Oh, cute. <laughs> so that was in uh, 1939. So he got married... And then he, this was, you know, right at the beginning of World War II, basically. And he felt like he, it was his duty to join the U.S. military and help out as a physician in the field. And this one guy at uh, University of Michigan's Department of Epidemiology convinced him that he could do more good if he helped him on his research for flu vaccine. Because flu had killed a whole bunch of U.S. soldiers um, and infected a whole bunch uh, during the end of World War I. So he decided, okay, that kind of fits. I'll, I'll do that. So they moved to Michigan from New York. They moved to Millinois, Michigan, Ann Arbor. Shout out. And um, they couldn't find any place like in the city that they could afford. So they ended up renting the top floor of a house in the middle of the countryside. Oh. It had a wood-burning stove. Oh, my. Donna was not thrilled. <laughs> she came I bet from... his in-laws loved this, too. Exactly. And she came from money, but she was also game. She was like, all right, we can make this work. I'll feed the fire, but you have to chop the wood. <laughs> so he's out there, like, chopping the wood and planting a garden. Like, he thought it was, it was pretty cool. Um, so while he was there, he decided that he wanted to focus on making a vaccine that included dead viruses instead of living viruses. So no one had thought of this or it hadn't been, um, proven it could work kind of. Yeah, they hadn't, they hadn't proven it. And it was kind of less reliable because it was more work to try to figure out how to kill it, but still, you know, like leave it intact. Yeah. The body can still be like, oh, that's what we had to look out for. Like, like you want to chemically keep it intact. Exactly. And so he went through, uh, different ways of trying to, to kill the virus, like with ultraviolet rays or with, um, heat, and none of that really worked because uh, what happened was you ended up killing most of the virus, but then there were still a couple that were alive, mm. and he didn't want to Survivors. take that risk. Yeah. yeah. And so what he, what he ended up doing was um, he used a, a solution of diluted formaldehyde, basically, called formulin, and he developed a technique to kind of slowly introduce and steep the virus in that solution, and then that would eventually kill all of the virus in it and he was able to make a vaccine 
They conducted a massive study with 12,000 students on college campuses for the flu vaccine, and they demonstrated that it could actually prevent the flu, which was pretty impressive because the flu has tons of strains, you know, tons of they have, uh, I think, two different types. Yeah. They've been... And then within that, there's like 200 strains or something no, totally. crazy. And you have no idea which one you're going to exactly. get or what the exactly. season will bring. They have to decide months and months ahead of time which one to produce. And, and that's what they realized. So they realized that, oh, this is an ongoing thing. We can't just make it and put it on a shelf and say, bye, flu that vaccine. stupid flu is always changing. Blah. Exactly. So that was kind of... Um, for a while in his career, he was continuing work on that because they always had to, you know, be researching strains. And actually, he had to travel around the country and <laughs> like, well, it's like, oh, do you have the flu? Oh, can I take a blood sample? <laughs> no, then, weirdo. Get away from me. I don't feel good. <laughs> I know. And, th- and that's how he was like tracking the different strains around the country and trying to figure out what to make in the next year's flu vaccine. So he's like traveling around. He's gone from home forever. And meanwhile, you know, his wife is giving birth. <laughs> To first their first son in 1944, their second son in 1947, he was on the road at the time. So he had to like rush back. She gave birth early, so she had to be in the hospital. So he had to rush back and take care of, you know, his two-year-old son, Peter. And, you know, in the book I read, it said that he just fed him uh, eggs and ketchup because <laughs> that was Peter's favorite dish. And also it was something that Jonas could cook. Cute. <laughs> I know. So I just imagine like this kid just covered in ketchup, just like so happy. Daddy's great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he gives me ketchup and eggs. So uh, he decided that this was no longer tenable with two kids. Like he couldn't be on the road all the time. And so he started looking for a directorship. Um, somewhere in the country where he could be basically his own boss, run his own lab, do be his own stationary. stuff. Exactly. Be stationary. <laughs> and um, I liked this little anecdote because he applied. There was um, a directorship open at the California Department of Public Health in Berkeley, which sounds amazing. You know, it's California. It's Berkeley. It's nice. And he was like, oh, I'm applying for this, you know. He set his sights on that. Yeah, for sure. And at first they wrote him back and were like, oh, yeah, we're kind of interested, whatever, whatever. But as the months went on, he just heard less and less and less. And then finally, just nothing. You know how you do job inquiries and you're like sending out applications? Dude, yeah. Yeah. Like the, you have you Terrible. Know, one, like, one interview, you don't hear back. And you're like, does this mean, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's like dating. It's like, oh, yeah. do you not really like me that much? <laughs> or are you just afraid of how much you like me? Yeah. And, and they totally just ghosted him at the end. <laughs> oh like, God. just stopped. Um, and so then he was like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And then he got an offer out of the blue from the University of Pittsburgh's virus lab. Pittsburgh. <laughs> so he like set his sights on Berkeley and instead got this offer from Pittsburgh. And the offer wasn't that great. Like they were like, all right, we'll pay you a good salary. And our director just quit because he was so frustrated with the lab space. <laughs> Here's this the awesome job <laughs> And the so, last guy left in a in a hurry. Exactly. And so and, and I think the guy who left before him recommended him for this, but he was like, Oh yeah, I should call Jonas. He's, he's a glove. He's for in punishment. Michigan right now doing nothing, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so he goes to Pittsburgh and the guy shows him around the terrible lab space. Apparently it was like this big basement, but it was half empty, everything was outdated, it didn't or have was good it ventilation. Half full, May. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> and yeah, and that's how he chose to look at it. He was like, huh, opportunity. Like because they kind of, they promised him a bit of independence. Look all this space I have to, yeah. to dance around. And they said, you can do whatever you want on the side, basically. So he decided to take a chance. He figured, I can always leave afterwards. So the poor kid ends up in Pittsburgh. I mean, I feel like this is kind of a model for many people's lives. Like even Jonas Salk didn't get what he wanted at the beginning of his career. Um, at, at this time, he was 32 years old. So it's like, it's relatable, Still a baby. I think. Yeah, if we think of ourselves that way. But I'm a baby. <laughs> so once he got to his lab in Pittsburgh, he was like, I'm going to focus on polio. I want to do this. And um, it was because the numbers of Americans contracting polio at that time kept rising every year. Like, every year it was massively more people so in, people are still freaking out and in just yeah hysteria yeah. so from 1940 to 1944 the the it, the number of people contracting polio doubled to 19,000 by 1946 it was t- over almost 27,000 and the summer of 1952 more than 55,000 children got polio oh my which God. is crazy i mean just kept going up and up and up and up and like every summer it was the same thing so this is the kind of thing where you you know someone who gets it i mean oh, no yeah. one would be no one would really be like oh I, no one i know has it or no. has gotten it I, what like, yeah you go to bed every day thinking you might wake up with polio that <laughs> is the kind of God, fear that's just so awful yeah and it got to the point where you know mothers distrusted like health workers and nurses who would come by because they knew that the nurses were watching their children for any signs of paralysis or sickness and it got to the point where the health departments would come and just take kids away who were who seemed like they might you know be sick put them in quarantine or you know they used to quarantine families in their in their buildings but now they were like just shutting off entire blocks they were taking children away like it was a really Total terrible, terrible time. Yeah. 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 Oh, my and God. And so it was really hard because it created this distrust between government and the populace. Like, they just didn't want to listen to what the government had to say because all they thought was, you're going to come take my kid away. Oh my I know. So it it's, was... It's a kind of... It, it sounds so absurd. I mean, if it was in a movie, people would be like, that would never happen. Yeah. Oh, guess what? It already has. Yeah. So he decides to focus on the polio vaccine, and he actually gets a lot of grant money from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, which um, it doesn't sound familiar, but the March of Dimes does. They started the March of Dimes. Gotcha. Okay. And they actually eventually kind of shifted their mission um, after, spoiler alert, they solved the polio vaccine problem. <laughs> Don't worry, everyone. Everything turns out fine. Um, but people were also very wary of a polio vaccine. So he was he was he decided to do basically the most difficult thing because in the 1930s there was a disastrous attempt at a polio vaccine um, that infected the children, inoculated, killed many of them. Like it was Yikes. terrible. Yeah. So. They he they already had kind of a public relations problem with that. That's putting it lightly. I know, I know. Um, let's see. So, yeah, come up with a slogan for his vaccine. It won't kill your child. Oh my god, you know what it sounds like? Is Arrested Development? It's like a banana, frozen banana that won't make you sick and kill you. Like when they're competing. You're like this is a low bar. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he uh, he basically first he had they had to type. Uh, polio, which was difficult because they really didn't have any information to go on. So the foundation was coordinating a bunch of medical teams around the country. And um, they eventually found that there were three types of polio. 
and they worked on categorizing all of them because you have to know what's out there before you can actually create a vaccine because you have to, you know, include virus from all of the different strains or whatever. Um, so he used the same technique that he had used uh, for the flu vaccine, that formulin technique, to try to kill it. And they would try to get these dead viruses, and then they would inject them into monkeys and see if the monkeys exhibited any signs of paralysis. Over the course of him developing this vaccine, 20,000 monkeys were used. Mm. I know. It was... When I read that number, I was pretty shocked. I mean, I don't, my background is not medical research, but it sounded kind of like a high number. Like, I wonder, <laughs> the the monkey population was, did yeah. not do well during this whole period because they were, you know, they were doing these experiments on them because it was the closest they could get before they actually tested them on humans. And we already know that they failed at testing them on humans with that disaster in the 1930s. So, I don't know. Three solid years of, you know, research and 20,000 monkeys. That's what it took to get a polio vaccine out of Salk's lab. I don't know how many other monkeys were collateral damage in the whole medical research system. Um, Thank you, monkeys. We're really sorry. Yep, we're sorry, but thank you very much. Uh, So, yeah, so his lab, I mean, it was slightly better because they got new equipment or whatever, but they didn't have any hoods to, like, you know, make sure that the, the cultures weren't contaminated or infected. And so they just kind of did them over these. They like soaked towels in a certain kind of solution and like held them over the vials. And then, you know, they're, they're taking stuff back and forth to the refrigerator and they would drop stuff. Like <laughs> they would drop vials of live polio virus. Ah! And then people would just book it out the lab. Like they just start running. Oh and my God. One of them said, let's see. They dropped vials and a lab assistant said about one spill, quote, we just cleaned it up with Lysol. Uh, so kind of a low tech operation. Oh my God. <laughs> um, I'm glad they weren't working with smallpox. I know. <laughs> but this happens, you know, a fair number of times. And, you know, you just like you poke yourself with a needle on accident. You drop a vial. Like those are the things that really science kids kids. and i mean this was part of the fear of testing vaccines as well was because you might set off an epidemic just testing it out Mm -hmm. um so you had to be very careful and make sure that it worked on monkeys before you went out and started just poking people and (laughs) that sounded terrible but you know what i mean poking people (laughs) very rude so he finally developed a vaccine that he thought would work And he then needed to go from monkey trials to human trials. This is the terrifying part that I found. So, like, this was, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s. And he decided to conduct human trials at the D.T. Watson Home for Crippled Children. Many of whom had had type 1 polio. So they had the antibodies in their body for that. But he basically wanted to test the vaccine on them to make sure they didn't get type 2 or type 3. And he was figuring they're already crippled? This is what I don't understand. Uh. So I think I think it has more to do with the fact that these were already kind of medical facilities. And so they were regulated in a certain way. And they always did obtain parental consent, I think. Okay. But it's still like... It didn't sit very well yeah, with it's, me. It's a little icky. It's a little icky. Um, so... <laughs> And, you know, this was actually common practice, like, to test on these kinds of populations. And also, in every instance of, like, these scientists trying to develop these vaccines, they always tested them on their own kids, too. I was going to say, didn't he just, yeah, use his 
yeah he didn't he he vaccinated his children later but uh yeah the first guy you know um the guy who developed the the disastrous one in the 1930s yeah he he inoculated his children how'd that go i i didn't read on i was just like skip (laughs) um (laughs) nope (laughs) because yeah so he uh he said he inoculated 52 subjects at first all himself he did all the inoculations himself and apparently he was very good with people and kids in particular like talking to them um but he said when you inoculate children with a polio vaccine for the first time you don't sleep well for two to three weeks oh man yeah no kidding you probably shouldn't props to him for doing it himself Mm -hmm. and not asking one of i don't know his assistants or maybe someone who worked at that facility to just do it and and kind of separate himself from it yeah that would be that would be really crappy. And he did. He made himself familiar to the people who work there and the kids who live there because... Took responsibility. He I, took responsibility. That's, that's cool. And they actually liked him. And apparently, I think, I don't know if it was at this home or another one, but you every better time... like the person. Every time they knew you. he was coming, the cook would bake a strawberry pie because they Aww. knew that he liked that. Yeah. So it was kind of really cute. Kinda cute. Um, so he worked his way through that. And then he, after that was successful, he inoculated never infected children. That was the next step. Um... And that was also done at the Watson home. And then he needed to try it on a larger sample. So he did that at Polk State School, which housed mentally disabled individuals. So he inoculated children oh, there. I know. It's a, that's what I'm saying. It's just like, what? why don't we just leave these poor people alone? You know? Okay. Um, but yeah, again, consent was given by parents. I, I think people wanted to be helpful. I think they wanted to protect their children more. You know, they figured right. they're already, you know, at risk or whatever. People were terrified. You know, they wanted something that would work and they were willing to try almost anything, but they were still distrustful of the whole process, which is a weird balance. So he must have had to be really, I don't know, charismatic and must have explained it really well and yeah must, yeah he must have been really good with people yeah to have been able to to do this. i mean i think he was really quiet and observant he like waited his turn to talk you know but when he did talk to people it sounds like he was really good at connecting with them right so they would trust so, him yeah that's good uh so he basically i mean he got good results for everything and so in january 1953 he met up with all these people from his organization they had formed a committee on immunization and they were just meeting to kind of share results. And so he doesn't even put in his presentation title that he was like, oh, by the way, I found a polio vaccine. <laughs> he was like on the sly, like gets up there to give like the second talk of the day. You know, he lets the first joker go before him. Who's, you know, I love this. I know. I know. OBT dubs. He's like, he's like, I don't want to upstage anyone. I'll let the first guy go. I mean, I'm glad that that guy got to do his presentation because no one else got to present after Salk. Right. Um, Actually, that's really sweet. Yeah. So yeah, he got up there and he was giving a presentation and he basically dropped the bomb like, oh, by the way, I have done human trials of a polio vaccine and it has worked. Woo-hoo! So and everyone just went there and went, well, so huh? you would think that this is like the part of the movie where everyone just like jumps up and cheers. No, they were all <laughs> furious. <laughs> they were, I mean, they weren't furious, <laughs> but they were all extremely skeptical, which is fine if you want to be skeptical, but they just tore him apart. Oh. Like, not why did you do this, but like this, you didn't do this. This method seems weird. The question is data. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe his results. And so this poor guy spent the last three years, you know, trying to do some good, gets up there expecting them to, you know, help him kind of reach the next stage. And they just tear him a new one. And so he felt a bit disrespected at that meeting, which is understandable. Yeah. Yeah. 
the next stage would have been a larger trial, right? And he needed time to plan that. You know, you have to do like thousands of people and make sure that, you know, it's actually working, that it's actually protecting them as opposed to them just never getting the virus, that kind of thing. And there was a huge split in that committee about when to do the big, you know, the large trial. Some of them wanted to do it right away. Some of them wanted to wait. Salk wanted to wait to make sure they got everything right. He was always very concerned with not harming in the process of trying to do some good. So um, let's see. So we didn't want to do the large trial, but someone on the committee leaked to the press that a polio vaccine had been developed. Oh. And then after that, there was this huge public clamoring. Like everyone was like, you have to vaccinate people. You have Hurry to do up. it right now. So at that Oof. point, it became an issue of if they didn't vaccinate people, they were the villains because Ooh. they have the solution and summer and was coming it. and they're withholding it. Exactly. Oh, God. So he tried to fix the situation by going on a television program in March of 1953 to explain to the American public. By like, doing some science communication. Exactly. <laughs> and he described the vaccine as in progress and incomplete and it did not work. Like, people were still, you know, clamoring for it. He even wrote an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, but it came out kind of muddled, like, in the rush to print. They didn't really edit it, and so uh, it came out kind of, like, mushy, and it was just not good. So it wasn't cohesive. Not cohesive, not concise, clear, yeah. exactly. So this was, he had a science communication problem, and he was trying to do crisis communication by himself, and meanwhile... All the scientists in his community were like, he's going on television to talk about his work. What a diva. Oh, my God. And so they all disrespected him for that reason. Um, God. I know. What a bunch of jerks. His attitude, though, was um, he didn't necessarily support, like, grandstanding your science just for that, you know, the sake of research. He did it because he said that it affected people's health yeah like immediate health and so he was interested in getting information out to them even if it was on a cbs program or something like that um but yeah others others didn't i wonder think. if it was easier to reach people back then because there were so fewer channels i know <laughs> like like now like the odds of actually reaching a significant portion of people even if you're on prime time you're not going to get everybody but it's when there's like two channels if you're on one of them your first is pretty good yeah that's true that's true but i mean it was also a problem because you know you didn't want avenues to get cut off from you either and so he did try to get more articles published later to like further explain the process and no one would publish it and so he you know the internet didn't exist back then so we had no other way of getting the information out and so he was kind of put in this box and he was trying his best, you know, to deal with the situation, but it was just... This must have been just a personal hell. Yeah, I'm glad he's was. such an optimistic guy because someone else might have just folded under all of this. Well, starting at that point, he became a celebrity, like, immediately. And people recognized him, reporters dogged him and his family, and everyone knew, you know, who he was. It got even worse when he actually did the large trial and in April of 1955 announced success he actually didn't announce it someone else handled the whole trial he was actually kind of shut out of it um he wasn't able to see any of the results or be a part of the process or anything like that what the um, what? i know i know uh it's not ideal but after that he became a celebrity and like he the press would not leave him alone i mean he got interviewed by all these magazines his 
his sons um, talked about how they remember having to dress up and they hated it <laughs> and they had to pose for all these family pictures. Dad, why'd you have to cure this? Exactly. It's so annoying. And, uh, but wh- one one of his sons hated it and one of his sons liked it because then, you know, he got treats and he got to hang out. And, uh, for it's sure. Cool. <laughs> so different perspectives. Um, but they, yeah, the press also published a photo of him inoculating his own sons. So it was at that point, you know. Um, after it was safe. Well, because so people for the most part were clamoring for it. Like you were saying, they were like, oh my God, there's something that could end this hell that we live in where we don't know if our kid is going to wake up on any given day and can't move. Yeah. Um, but there was also that distrust. So was anyone like, oh, this has got to be a scheme or it can't be true? I wonder yeah, what percentage so of people were like, uh-uh. There, there was one reporter, I think his last name was Winchell, um, he did a broadcast in 1954. So this was before that they before they announced the success of the large trial in 1955. So a year before, and he broadcast that you know the vaccine could be a killer, and that the United States Beware. government had built and stashed a whole bunch of tiny white coffins all over the country because they were planning on oh, certain areas just being decimated. You know, yeah, ah. it was really bad. And, and you know, meanwhile. That made a bunch of states and and people who were going to participate just pull out of the Mm -hmm. program. And that was a problem because they needed to have a certain number in the large trial to make sure that it was actually working and how effective it actually was. Because they didn't expect it to be 100% effective, but they wanted to know how effective it was. Um, So part of their science communications plan was to... um, use the first kid who was inoculated in the large trial as kind of the poster child for this whole thing. And his name was Randy Kerr, and he was a six-year-old from Virginia. And is he the first poster child? He might be. Is I that why we say poster child? We have to look this up. That's true. I don't know. But yeah, he you know got the shot, and they put him on all these promo materials, and he's saying things like, it didn't hurt at all. Like, you know, like <laughs> oh. trying to encourage all these other kids you know, to not I'm be scared. Great. Yeah, and also to encourage their parents to allow them to be vaccinated because that was the real problem. Um, so in 1955, they announced, you know, that it was actually pretty effective, and Salk made the the announcement that, well, with a little bit more work next year, we could be at 100% effective, uh, which was it's just crazy. Like within that amount of time, to have something that could just stop polio in its tracks. Um, so then there was like, you know, the whole deal of trying to figure out how to inoculate everyone. And that was something that was out of Salk's hands. And it was really nerve wracking for him because what he realized was he could not produce enough vaccine in his own lab for the entire country, much less the world. So he had to rely on pharmaceutical companies. The problem is pharmaceutical companies are in it for the money. And so if they, you know, Salk wrote out this incredibly detailed process about how, you know, to use the formula in dilution, to kill the virus, which was the very important part because you can't have live virus in the vaccine. And they cut corners everywhere they could. In one instance, he found actually that out of the three types of polio virus, they didn't include one of the types and just include more of another. And he was like, that's not how this works. Uh. And so he tried to insist on like three levels of quality control, like the the labs had to do their own testing, the NIH had to do their own testing, and then they had to send them to Salk's lab to get tested as well. Because he's like, I'm sending this vaccine out into the world. I want to make sure I am not killing anyone. Another big controversy was in the large trial, they, some people wanted to do, you know, traditionally in, in tests, you give some people a placebo and some people the actual thing. Right. And then, you know, be, so you don't have other influencing factors in, in the results. Salk's attitude was because this was a public health crisis, 
everyone should get the actual vaccine and then you should just compare them because there wasn't enough vaccine to go around anyway just mm-hmm. compare them to the populations who never got it right um, yeah so, it, it would be it would be pretty weird if yeah one of the the kids who got the placebo exactly. then actually got polio and you're like oh just kidding when you when you signed up for that yes. trial we actually didn't give it to you yes and <laughs> Which that, is was, how it works that now. was his point yeah it would be it would be pretty weird even now to be to find out that you were given the placebo i always wonder how that works yeah and he he felt personally that if a kid got the placebo and then got polio and was paralyzed that would be his fault Mm -hmm. personally Mm -hmm. so that's why he was really pushing for it i I think they ended up compromising doing some that they had already agreed to give everyone the vaccine they did that and then in other populations they actually did the placebo comparison but he didn't have anything to do with the large trial he was just from the outside trying to be like no no yeah um, so By that the way, was Poser Child is not from that kid. It's kind oh. of the opposite. Poser Child came from using a, a child who had an actual disease or, or deformity or anything and saying, here's the Poser Child for this kind of of kind of affliction. So you can raise awareness about it or, or get people to, oh, to really? the cause. Yeah, so it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> never huh. mind. Never mind. <laughs> As you were. Just erase that part of the yeah, episode. Just don't think about it. So in the end, by the end of 1961... Polio had been reduced by 97% in the U.S. using the killed vaccine, the killed virus vaccine. Um, There was another rival vaccine that emerged in 1962 by this guy who was a rival scientist within the same organization as Salk. Basically a complete jerk. Yeah, I already sound, I'm already Um, like, I don't like this guy. But he was using a vaccine that had live virus in it. And he started promoting himself and saying, you know, Salk's vaccine doesn't work. Mine does, blah, blah, blah. Um, it turns out that it was an oral vaccine, so it was cheaper to make and easier, you know, to administer and all of that. However, because it, it included live virus, as the polio vaccine spread around the world and people were getting inoculated, the the vaccine with the live virus was actually the only thing keeping polio alive. There were only 416 cases reported worldwide by 2013. That was not that long ago. It was confirmed in a couple Asian and African countries. The live virus vaccine was actually responsible for a couple dozen cases of polio each year. Oof. So then very recently, the, the World Health Organization was like, we're going to stop using no this. More. Yeah. No more. No more. Like, no more live virus. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's interesting that they, they, they decided, oh, because it's cheaper and easier to administer, but it also sometimes co- causes polio. That's better than the more expensive one that never causes polio. So those are the kinds of pharmaceutical company decisions yeah. that well, it's like when car make companies do that. They're like, oh, there's this problem with our car, and it will kill this many people. Which is more expensive, or which is cheaper, rather, yeah. actually doing the recall or just paying those people that die this much money for for us for our car hurting them? Like, yeah. who does that and <laughs> sleeps at night? So but- yeah, so he actually, I assumed that he'd gotten a Nobel Prize. Not the case. Mm -mm. He was never even elected to the National Academy of Sciences. It was because there were a whole lot of scientists that were really sore about him, you know, going to the press and, you know, living it up. What a bunch of press is what they thought. Yeah. And also, they didn't think that his accomplishment was a discovery. They thought it was just more of a technical thing that he did. Okay. So the dude saves the world from polio. And also, it was a really big deal that he didn't try to patent it or do yeah. anything that was going to make a big block for people to access it. He was like, here you go, humanity, my gift to you. Yeah, and this was his goal from the very beginning was to do something to help 
humanity and he succeeded what a bunch so at of least jealous jerks i mean let's yeah. be real that's exactly what that all well, that was the guy who made the rival vaccine the one that had live virus in mm-hmm. it he hated jonas hated him and even like he always said it was pure kitchen chemistry not a discovery dude and then he said sulk didn't discover anything so that was basically wow. the justification for had he does not deserve no it. No idea that people were so snarky about yeah. this. Yeah. They were really snarky. Unacceptable. And so he became a hero to the American public overnight. And in the scientific community, it was exactly the opposite. Wow. So he never got respect from his colleagues, really. And he, after that, um, he turned to, he started doing research on the nature of cancer cells and, you know, it leaked out into the press and they're like, he cured cancer. And he's like, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't cure cancer. I didn't cure it. Um, I haven't cured everything yet. Give me a second. And then in 1963, he, he moved to California and established the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. And he started doing research on uh, HIV AIDS, trying to figure out a vaccine for that. So that's what he worked on for his the rest of his life. Um, and then he died in, uh, in June of 1995. Mm. So... I mean, he accomplished so much. When he figured out the polio vaccine, he was 39. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Puts things in perspective. And no, he totally. lived another 40 years. Well, and also when you, you know, when you say when it really was reaching, you know, in a, when it reached 97% of people, it was, what, what would you say, 1961? God, yeah. that was so recent. I know. We are, I mean, we, we totally take for granted not waking up every day and going, can I move my legs? I mean, it, it's and, and that parents don't have to worry about this for their kids. We are so spoiled. Yeah. And, and I'm not, and we don't need, we, like, there, we could do a whole other episode about vaccines in general yes. and how I was they just work gonna and say, how awesome they are. But this is the first one that we totally take for granted. Although in other parts of the world, it is not solved. We're still working right. to truly eradicate this. Yeah. Pe- people in, in, in other parts of the world still get it. It's still a struggle getting everybody vaccinated because of, war and conflicts and reaching the people and also people still do start rumors there that's like oh the americans are trying to do this or that or this government organization it's lying to you like don't take the vaccine for your kid and everything but um well the fact that they developed the flu vaccine in the mid 40s that was not that long ago and now you know just a couple decades later people are ignoring it they don't get their flu vaccine they don't realize it wasn't that long ago where people died all the time. And people still do. Yeah. And people, but because it's not someone, you know, I've never lost a friend to the flu. Knock on wood. On right. But, um, but yeah, we don't really think about it because it's not like polio where you know someone. I mean, mm-hmm. the people, the people that the flu makes really sick and actually, you know, takes from us are people that are really immunodeficient. So, you know, babies, it's really, really, really scary for babies, you know, newborns. It's really scary for for people that are much, much older. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people forget that getting the flu vaccine is not so much about a healthy 20-something guy who, like, you know, would, because he's probably not going to die from it. But if he gets it and goes to visit grandma or, like, or so, some, someone else who then, you know, meets a newborn baby whatever if you if you don't if you get it and you spread it around to people that are really susceptible to it mm-hmm. really the flu you get the flu vaccine if you're healthy for other people yeah so sometimes people kind of forget that step they're like well i'll be fine i'm like right you'll be fine right will everyone else be fine you know that's that's part of this picture we kind of forget that sometimes yeah um but yeah it's just it's crazy how recent it all was and i i'm blown away 
that he was not well respected by his peers and colleagues. Yeah, that is so petty to me. So I think we we should go out to brunch with with Jonas. Salk, yeah, I'll bring I'll, his whole family. I'll buy. <laughs> his, his, his kids don't have to dress up, and it'll be like Come being, in your PJs. It'll be like going to brunch with George Clooney. Like I mean, if if we time traveled a bit, um, <laughs> but yeah, he was so popular. Everyone knew his face. That's really cool too. I feel like that doesn't really happen so much anymore. When there's a big discovery, I feel like the actual person. A, there are a lot of people that go into his discovery, so it's really hard to like pin it on one person and, and hold mm-hmm. them up and be like, oh, this is the person that discovered this thing all by their self, <laughs> you know, themselves. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it doesn't happen so much more. Like, we, there are definitely scientists that are really famous and because they're science communicators and, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, but it was mm-hmm. not like we know him because he discovered something really, uh, you know, amazing or, you know, whatever. Well, but, some people thought that he tried to hog credit. Other people thought that he went above and beyond trying to give credit to, you know, his lab and everyone who had, you know, contributed from the organization. So it goes back and forth. But yeah, he he became the face of the vaccine. And, and for a while, they were calling it the Salk vaccine, which mm-hmm. also rubbed scientists the wrong way because they're like, no, it's the polio vaccine, not the Salk vaccine. Everybody calm down. Yeah. But yeah, Einstein became became famous like yeah, this as well. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but he was it just he just like jealousy. made up the stuff in his head. Man. Yeah, it is jealousy. What is, oh my, uh, that's that's gonna bug me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I cannot wait to have him over for brunch because he sounds absolutely awesome, mm-hmm. and it sounds like he needs some some positive people around him. <laughs> yeah, I feel like both him and his wife probably need a drink. Yeah, so, mimosas all around. Mimosas all around. <laughs> Not for the kids. They just get orange juice. I, I just assume they're still like under ten. Virgin um, mimosas for that. Yeah, <laughs> they never. They, yeah, they're 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 baby. Yeah, we're going back in time for this brunch. I mean, obviously. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, yeah I guys. I really enjoyed uh, learning about him, and I was amazed by the con- you know the historical context of how Absolutely. terrible these epidemics were, and the fear that was just every summer. Mm-hmm. You know, I you think of summer as something to look forward to, and imagine it wasn't being terrified of yeah. it. Yeah. That is, that's bleak. That is awful. Well, on that really <laughs> positive note, enjoy your summer. I mean, we are getting into summer, so that's good. I yep. mean, if for our Northern Hemisphere friends, love to the Southern Hemisphere. Sorry, Southern Hemisphere. We're going You've had into your winter. Time. <laughs> so, but enjoy your summer of not worrying about polio, everybody. And thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend about Science Brunch if you're enjoying it and uh, subscribe, rate, review, comment. We read all the comments. If you have any anything you want to let us know or, or a scientist you want us to cover, you can email us at sciencebrunch at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So, yeah, we're listening. We're open for feedback, guys. So please let us know. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye.